Y'all get a bunch of rain? How many of you got rain yesterday? Well, we got a pile of it out at my place. I was, after it passed through last night, I went walking out to my barn through my backyard and my feet just sank uh, in the yard. Never happened before. Drove down to see what kind of water we got in the pond and got stuck. Uh, never did that before down there. Praise God for four-wheel drive. So it was able to get out, but we are definitely in the midst of a, a change in seasons. I understand tomorrow that high is not supposed to get barely out of the 50s, and then Tuesday just barely out of the 40s. So we are definitely in a change, and of course next week it'll be back in the 90s again. So uh, we got to enjoy it while we can. But we're definitely in the midst of of a change in seasons, and I was thinking about that a while ago, and how Danny was talking about how today is our big kickoff for the campaign to pay off the debt. And it's so neat how I believe God timed this for that, being that it is so evident that we are in a change of seasons naturally, I believe what we are doing here kicking off this campaign represents a big change in seasons that we are entering as a church. And uh, so come after the service and listen and, and be a part so you can know what's going on because it's definitely God doing. This is not something that we have just come up with. We're just following what God is saying to us. Okay, if you have your Bibles, let's go to Mark chapter 10 this morning. Today's message is going to be kind of a sequel from uh, of last week's message, which was where we were looking at how God just wants us to enjoy him and to find our greatest pleasure in him. I talked about how many of us have grown up associating our relationship with God more with words like duty and obligation and sacrifice rather than enjoyment and pleasure. But God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This morning we're going to look at another word that we often associate with our relationship with God and that is the word service. But the question I'll be presenting today is who's serving who? And I'm asking that and how it relates to God's glory. As in, does God get more glory out of us serving him or out of him serving us? So that's what I'm going to attempt to answer this morning. And the basis for this comes from the story of blind Bartimaeus. It's in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46. Let's stand together and, and read this as we receive the word of the Lord today. Mark 10, 46, then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up. He is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful, God, so grateful for just your presence that is here with us this morning. Lord, I know that there is something that you are wanting to speak directly into our hearts. So I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would be able to hear what it is that you would say. 
Lord, would you change us? Would you reveal a part of yourself to us in a way that does change us, God, and just increases our love and our awe and our just admiration of you? Lord, if you could ask us this question, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, my answer would be, I want you to, to reveal yourself to us. Because when that happens, things are changed. And so, Lord, let it be according to your will. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I just love this story here because there, there's so much in here, so many things that that you could talk about. And the first thing I want to point out is that last part of verse 46 where it says, A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. So Mark makes a point to say who his father was, that he was the son of Timaeus. To point that out means that Timaeus was apparently a man of some stature. He was either of high position or wealth or or some type of importance within that community. Timaeus would have been someone who was pretty well known in the area. Otherwise, Mark wouldn't have made a point to, to name him, to say who he was. It would be pointless to say who Bartimaeus' dad was if he wasn't of any significance. In fact, the name Timaeus actually means highly prized. The name Bartimaeus only means son of Timaeus. And so Bartimaeus, even in his name, he doesn't get his own identity. His significance is tied to the significance of his father. Now, for him to be begging on the side of the road, one of two things had to be going on here. If his dad was a significant man in the community, then Bartimaeus should have had all his needs taken care of. And he wouldn't have needed to be begging on the side of the road. But the fact that he was begging means that either he has been rejected by his father who is ashamed of him. Or his father has since passed away and has left him with no one to support him or take care of his needs. Either way, Bartimaeus is obviously in a bad situation. And his life is either marked by lots of fear or lots of shame. If his dad died, leaving no one to care for him, then he would have had a lot of fear. If his dad was rejecting him because he was ashamed of his son's physical handicap, then he would have obviously had a lot of shame. More than likely, he had both. And shame and fear are two of the three biggest things that keep us from experiencing all that God has for us in life in Jesus. The other one is guilt. Guilt, shame, and fear are the three biggest things hindrances for us to experiencing the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. And guilt is also a very big possibility for Bartimaeus because we know that in another story, when Jesus and his disciples came up on a different blind man, the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, who sinned to cause this man's blindness, him or his parents? And so there was this belief in the culture that uh, somebody's ailment or physical disability was a result of their own fault. That they were being punished somehow for, for something that they had done. And so no doubt Bartimaeus would have been dealing with that as well in his mind. Mark does a pretty good job of conveying just the desperation of this man. Verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out. 
And the Greek word there is really demonstrative. I mean, it, he wasn't just holding his hand out hoping Jesus would put something in it. He was shouting. He was loudly crying out for Jesus. And what he cried out is very interesting when he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. For him to yell those words tells us that Bartimaeus saw more being blind than most people in that crowd could see having perfect vision. For him to refer to Jesus as the son of David meant that he knew that Jesus was the promised Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament. I'm going to read something from the book of 2 Samuel. I want you to listen to or or follow along as it should be up on the screens. God is speaking to David through the prophet Nathan. And in 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12, he says this. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, in the natural, he was talking about Solomon, but ultimately, this was a prophecy about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of what was said to David here, and Bartimaeus knew it. And the only way he could have known it is by the Holy Spirit revealing that to him, just the same way that people are saved today. The only way we come to know that Jesus is the only answer for our condition of Uh, apart from God is by the Holy Spirit revealing that to us. Now, the first reaction he gets here to his desperate plea is obviously not the one he was hoping for. Verse 48 says that they were sternly telling him to be quiet. The vast majority of people in this crowd didn't see Jesus as the promised Messiah the way that Bartimaeus did. Most were probably following him just because he was the popular thing of the moment. Others saw him as a savior but we're hoping he would be a savior in the physical sense. They wanted Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom and restore the nation of Israel and free them from the oppression of the Romans. They didn't see him as the the savior in the spiritual sense. And because they saw Jesus this way, they told Bartimaeus to shut up because a blind beggar was so beneath the attention of a soon-to-be king. Jesus didn't have time to To mess with someone like that. He had more important things. He had kingdom things to deal with. Or so they would have thought. They probably also thought. You don't ask someone like that. To do something for you. I mean. You are beneath him. But Bartimaeus wasn't listening to the naysayers. He was too desperate. And knew deep down in his spirit. That Jesus was his only hope. He had probably tried everything in his life. Uh, to fix whatever was wrong with him, but nothing worked. You know, Jesus was his only hope. And it says when they told him to be quiet, he kept crying out all the more. He got even louder in his desperation. And then verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man saying to him, take courage, stand up. He is calling for you. 
When they said he is calling for you, that literally means you are being summoned. Verse 51, in answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Now think about that. The people had to have been absolutely flabbergasted by Jesus asking him this question. Thinking, what? You're asking what you can do for him? This is a blind beggar. If anything, he should be asking what he could do for you. I mean, you're a king. I'm telling you, that's the same mentality that a lot of people still have today when it comes to their relationship with God. And that's the mentality that religion tries to keep instilling into us. That we are the ones that should be serving God, not the other way around. But I'm telling you right now, that is an arrogant and self-centered mentality. To think that we can serve God in a way that would impress him or cause him to move on our behalf because of these great things that we have done is arrogant. And you could also say that it belittles God. Listen, Acts 17, 25 says that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. First point, if you're following along in the notes, is this. God loves to show his godness by serving and working for me. He loves to show his godness by working, by serving and working for me. This is something that some of you need to keep reminding yourself. And I know that there are some, probably some of you in here would say, well, that is what sounds arrogant and belittles God. And it would be if it meant that God submits to us and obeys our commands. It would mean. It would be if it meant that working for us was like we were the employers and he was the employee. But that's not what it means at all. God doesn't submit to our commands and our wishes. This is not God as a genie in a bottle. Not at all. We are the ones who submit to him. And so the best way to think of this is in terms of the next point. The reason why God delights in serving and working for us is because it displays his strength in light of our weakness. It displays his ability in light of our inability. His abundance in light of our lack. And his providence in light of our absolute need. To do this glorifies him. The giver gets the glory. Isaiah 64.4 says this. For from days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear. Nor has the eye seen a God besides you. Who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. Some translations say who works for those who wait for him. Now, waiting for him in this sense means that you are waiting for him to do it rather than you doing it on your own. You know, so many times we get impatient with God 
thinking that we've got to take matters into our own hands and, and we've got to get our hands all over it or, and make it work or it's not going to if we don't do it. But God says to wait on him and let him do it his way. Of course, this is another prophetic word of the gospel. Because ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, mankind's relationship with God was always based on what they could do for God to bring him glory. And they tried it through obeying the law. They tried it through offering sacrifices. They tried it through following the right judges, having the right king. The entire Old Testament is about man's failed attempts at doing great things for God in their own strength. Specifically, trying to fix their broken relationship with God. And it failed time after time after time after time. And God allowed it. Allowed things to be this way for years and years, generation after generation, to show us and to prove that it could not be done. To show us that we needed Him to do for us what we were incapable of doing for ourselves. Only in that would He be glorified best. Not in what we could do for him, but in what he could do for us. Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us what the law required we are considered to have fulfilled not because of how good we are at following it but because of how great Jesus was in fulfilling it and he passes that on to us he did it we play no part and in doing that he was most glorified I've mentioned this next point before, but I want to say it again because I believe this is so important for us to get. Next thing in your notes. The only currency recognized as legal tender in God's kingdom is need. Is need. What does that mean? Well, legal tender, of course, is currency or money that is considered valid for trade. So in the United States... The currency considered legal tender is the dollar. You can't buy anything with a peso because that's only legal tender in Mexico. You can't purchase something. You can't receive something in return for something that's not considered legal tender. The only currency God recognizes as legal tender, legal tender in his kingdom, the only thing that he will accept for something in return from him is need. Our absolute need because it's that orphan mentality that causes us to try try all other types of currency to get something from God an orphan will always assume things like commitment will bring the right currency if I bring my commitment to God if he could just see how committed I am to him then he will do it Others will assume that sacrifice is still the correct currency. The more I sacrifice for God, the more impressed he is going to be with that. The more blessed I will be. And many still assume that service is legal tender that God accepts. The more I serve God, the more blessed I will be. The more I serve him, the more he will 
be likely to give me what I desire. But God doesn't accept any of that but need is what he recognizes. It's simply to come to him and say, God, I'm absolutely bankrupt. There is nothing that I can offer you that you need. Nothing I can offer you that you don't already own. I have nothing to offer but my absolute need of you. And that is when he shows up and shows out. And displays the riches of his goodness and glory. It's exactly what we see here with blind Bartimaeus. Jesus had this whole crowd of people around him. And you know every one of them were wanting something from him. Most of them they were probably just wanting to be entertained. But they didn't really see their need of him. They just wanted to be impressed. Or they wanted to be included. Some of them were probably bragging to Jesus. Telling them about all these great things that they had done. How they been helping the poor. How they have been spending a lot of time in the temple. And just trying to impress him. In the midst of all those people that wanted something from him, there was only one he stopped for and asked directly, what do you want me to do for you? And the reason he did was because Bartimaeus was the only one who brought nothing but his absolute need. He knew he had nothing to offer, and so he cried out, have mercy on me. Last point in your notes is this. One asks for mercy only when there's nothing else to offer. You ask for mercy only when there's nothing else to offer. So when someone is on trial for committing a a crime, first they're going to offer evidence that they didn't do it. And if that evidence isn't very strong, next they're going to offer a plea deal in order to get a lesser sentence. If the other side doesn't accept that bargain, all they have left is to ask the judge for mercy. They've run out of things to offer. And their only hope is that the judge will find mercy. I've skipped verse 50 a while ago, so let's go back to it. It says, throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Now that cloak was more than likely the only thing that Bartimaeus owned. And so he wouldn't have parted from it very easily. And to him, it was more than a cloak. It would have been the cover for his shame, the security in his fear. And a lot of people, if that's all they had and they wanted something from Jesus, if they wanted him to do something for them, they would have at least offered that to him in exchange for what they wanted. But as a sign of his absolute need, knowing that Jesus was his only hope, he threw that aside, coming to Jesus completely bankrupt, with nothing to offer but his humility and his need. You know, a lot of times we'll come to God and ask him of something, and when we do, we tend to bring things with us. Some of us will bring a deal God, if you do this, I promise you, I will do whatever. I've told you before, God doesn't make deals. And if you think that you have promised something to God and made a deal with him, and that's still hanging over your head, and, and you've got to fulfill that, 
you need to let that go. He wants to let that go because just because you made a deal does not mean God accepted it. He doesn't make deals. Sometimes we'll bring a case with us to God, a case for why our prayers should be answered. God, I've done this. God, I've done that. God, I've been so faithful. You owe me. God doesn't owe anyone a thing ever. Not a long life, not a good marriage, not believing kids. He owes nothing. Everything that he gives is a sign of his grace and mercy. And to claim that God owes you anything is arrogance at its finest. God wants us to come to him bringing nothing but need, being absolutely bankrupt. Because it's only in our complete need of him does he then get to display the riches of his glory. Now, I want to mention something here as kind of a side note. And I thought about this in last week's message, but it goes perfect right along with this one. You know, fasting, going without food for a period of time, is really not a discipline that many Christians practice today, at least not here in the American church. But it is something that Jesus expects us to do because he said, when you fast, and then gave some instructions on that. He didn't say, if you do. He just assumed it would just be a part of our relationship with him. It was a practice that Jesus did quite often. But what I've noticed, and this is the way I used to view it myself, is that when most of us do fast, it's, always, it's almost always because of something that we're praying for, that we're asking God to do. And what we're essentially doing is, offering something to God in exchange for whatever it is we're, we're praying for. It's like, if I go without food for a while, then God will see just how serious I am about this. If I'm willing to, to, to starve myself for a little bit, God will see just how bad I want this from him, how bad I want him to answer that, and maybe he'll, he'll have some compassion and, and answer my prayer. It's like, We think the longer we fast, the greater our chances are that God will answer us and give us what we want. But I'm telling you, when we approach fasting like that, we've essentially become our own version of the prophets of Baal. Who are cutting themselves to get their God to move on their behalf. Instead of cutting ourselves, we're starving ourselves. But it's the same thing. That is not the purpose of fasting. The purpose of it is to enhance the very thing that I talked about last week, our enjoyment and our pleasure of God. Say, well, how in the world does it do that? Because it's saying, I'm laying aside the pleasure that I get from food that I may find more pleasure in you, God. I'm laying aside what I tend to treasure most that I may treasure you more. I want to be sustained Not by food, but by your presence. It's just a means for us to enhance our enjoyment, our pleasure, our closeness with God. Jesus practiced it all the time. You think he was doing that to try to twist the Father's arm? Of course not. He was doing it just to enhance his fellowship, his relationship, his enjoyment of him. Just as a way 
to enjoy him more. Okay, back to the message. I'm sure that all of us have probably heard those who criticize Christianity or any religion for that matter and say, well, it's just a crutch for those who are weak. Don't get offended by that. Because I would say to them, you're absolutely right. Actually, you're partly right. Because it's more than a crutch. Because I'm broken. I'm sick. I'm in desperate need of my God. You're dang right I'm weak. And he's more than a crutch. He's my whole wheelchair. And to say that I need God that much is to say he must increase while I must decrease. Now, before I wrap this up, I have to acknowledge what I'm sure some of you are probably wondering about. And that is, what about the verses in the Bible that do talk about us being servants of God? Like the way Paul, in nearly every one of his letters, he refers to himself as a bondservant of God. Romans 1.9, he said, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son. Or Colossians 3.24, that says, It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's pretty much it. When it comes, says anything about us serving God, James, Peter, and Jude also called themselves bondservants of Christ. That was simply a way of them expressing how, how devoted, how submitted to God's will they were. How they were willing to do whatever was asked of them. It didn't mean that they were giving God anything that he needed. It was just an expression of their devotion to Jesus. But if you pay attention to what the New Testament has to say about serving specifically where we are commanded to serve, it is always in relation to one another. Where we're commanded to serve is when we are commanded to serve each other. Just like Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. We serve God the worship and honor that he deserves when you and I begin serving and preferring one another. It's not done as a means of getting something in return from God. This is not another way of earning brownie points with him. It's done as a privilege for doing for others what God has and continues to do for you. And any working and serving that we do for God should always come from the serving that he does for us. Once again, it's because of, not for, because God serves me in my need. I now can serve others. Last thing. Look at the last part of the text, verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Bartimaeus followed Jesus after that. Not so that he could get something more for him, but because of what Jesus had just done for him. The result of Jesus serving him in his need was that he became a follower. He became a follower of Jesus, living his life for him. So the takeaway from this message today 
that I hope you get this morning. Number one is that God is not impressed in the least bit with what you can do for him. He has not moved an inch by your commitment, your dedication, your achievement, or your success. He is only moved by your humility and your need. And I know that that is not going to be very good news to those who put a lot of hope in their identity in what they can do. It's not going to be very good news for religious folk at all. But it's great news for those of us who've ever felt like we couldn't ever do enough. For those of us who've ever felt like the things we do just aren't ever good enough. And that's great news. It's good news to those who feel burnt out trying to impress God or, or trying to get him to move on their behalf for, for something, trying to earn his favor in any way. God is delighted and honored to serve you. He is most glorified in that. And to those of you who may be here today, who are probably in just as desperate of a situation as Bartimaeus was in, should be great news to you. Because to you, I would say, take courage, get up. He's calling for you. Just like with Bartimaeus, Jesus is here. And he's saying to you, what do you want me to do for you? Let's pray. God, you are so good. Lord, it's truth like this that lets us know we can say you are a good, good father. And Lord, I just confess on behalf of all of us here that we have tried to buy you off with things that you don't need, with things that you aren't impressed by. Lord, we have demanded our rights. I think that we have put you in our debt Lord, we confess that this morning and repent. Lord, we want more of you and less of us. And God, I pray for the one who came in here today thinking that they are so broken. So broken, God, that they don't even feel comfortable being in here like... Satan keeps trying to tell them they don't deserve to be here. Lord, I pray that you would break through that lie and say if they are that broken, they probably deserve to be here more than anybody else who's putting on masks trying to pretend like everything's okay. Lord, rend open our hearts to show that there is 
nothing that we can offer you that we need you desperately every day. Lord, the way Bartimaeus threw aside his cloak, I pray that we would throw aside those masks that we wear, trying to impress others, trying to make it seem like we've got it all together. And Lord, we would be able to come to you and say, God, I am bankrupt. I am broken. I am needy of you. Lord, I believe that is beautiful music to your ears. It just gives a place for you to show out your goodness and your glory. So, Holy Spirit, would you come? Lord, I just ask for a heart of spirit of openness, brokenness, repentance. Jesus, you come. Fill in those empty spaces. In your name I pray, amen.